Hello and welcome to Radio Maria. This is Credo, an hour where we hear a talk on some theological matter or on scripture. And today we have the um, privilege of having Father Richard Onsworth, a Dominican father, who is at the moment, if I'm correct, in Leicester. Is that right, Father? Yep. And it's um, very wonderful to have you on for the second of your talks. Thank you um, the last time we had you on, I thought that you were going to do this every week. And so when you said to me we would have you for as many months as um, as you had in you, I thought, goodness me, that's that is really you've got some stamina. <laughs> but as it as it happens, you are only with us once a month, which is very sad indeed. But um, well, thank I, you for being sad. <laughs> <laughs> I could certainly do with more scripture study in in my um theological menu if we you can see i've got food on my mind on this <laughs> on this fast day um but i'm not going to be the one talking it's going to be you so i'm going to hand over to you and let you begin with the prayer thank you very much in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Well, yes, Tim, as you said, I will only be joining you once a month. Alas, who knows, perhaps in the years to come, we may do more. But what I'm going to be doing for the next however many months it takes is taking us through the Gospel of St. Matthew. Last month, I gave a general overview of the gospel and gave you some of my theological and, and scholarly opinions for what they were worth. Um, but henceforth, my plan would be to cover one or two chapters each session, uh, just looking through them. I'm going to take the liberty of not reading it to you. I'm going to assume that our listeners have got copies of Bibles. And after all, it is the Gospel of Matthew. You will probably have heard the story before. Um, so I will just simply launch straight in and talk about the content and what the evangelist and what God are seeking to teach us about Christ, about our faith and about ourselves. The first two words of Matthew's Gospel are how I want to begin today. And the first two words, that is in Greek, not in English. I won't do too much Greek as a rule, but sometimes it's interesting. And the first two words of the Gospel of Matthew are Biblos Genesaos, which mean Book of Genesis. Now, the way that that's translated, for example, in the new RSV that I'm looking at, is an account of the genealogy. And that's a perfectly good translation, but it's worth bearing in mind that from the very beginning, when we are reading St. Matthew's Gospel, the evangelist is telling us, I am writing you some more Bible. Not just writing you some more Bible, but I am recapitulating the scriptures that we already know. I suggested to you last time, Matthew's probably writing largely for a Jewish audience, an audience that knows its Old Testament, knows its Bible, when they hear those first two words, followed then by, of Jesus Christ, they're being told, 
we are going over the whole of salvation history again, but now we are seeing it through the lens of Jesus. We're seeing how Jesus takes salvation history and brings it to its fulfillment. And then as we go through the next section of St. Matthew's Gospel, he does that very, very straightforwardly by simply taking us through the genealogy of Jesus Christ, as he says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So he's taking us right back to the beginnings of the call of Abraham and therefore the beginnings, the origins of the people of Israel, the chosen people of God. Uh, in fact, yesterday I was doing my scripture group in my parish and we got up to the call of Abraham and I suggested to them then, and I suggest it to you now, that we can divide the whole of scripture into two very unequal parts. The first part would be the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and the second part would be everything else. And you'll say to me, well, obviously that's insane, but I promise you it isn't. What happens in those first few chapters of Genesis is that over and over again, the people sin beginning, of course, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Cain's murder of his brother Abel, the flood, and so on. We've got sin. And in each case, sin is followed by the consequences that God pronounces. Because you've done this, this is how it's going to be from now on. And obviously, those consequences are always bad. But immediately afterwards, God offers some kind of mitigation some way in which he will make it possible for us to live with those consequences and continue to seek him, to continue to live in some kind of relationship with God. So for example, it seems a bit odd, but there it is. After Adam and Eve are expelled from Eden, he makes them aprons. And you know, who doesn't want a nice apron? And so it goes on until we get to the Tower of Babel. And at first glance, it looks like the pattern is broken. The consequence of sin is the scattering of human languages. From now on, people are not all one nation, not all one family, but humanity has been divided. But then God calls Abraham. And the call of Abraham is God saying, right, let's start from scratch with one family, one nation, and they will be my chosen people. When St. Matthew then appeals to Abraham at the beginning of his genealogy, takes us all the way back there at the beginning of the second verse of the gospel, he's telling us, I'm going to show you how in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is being faithful finally and definitively to the promise he made to Abraham and is therefore finally undoing all of the consequences of the sinfulness of humanity going right back to the very beginning. Now, one of the things that you'll know about Matthew's genealogy is, because he tells us explicitly, it divides into three lots of 14. One lot of 14 from Abraham to David, one lot of 14 from David to the Babylonian uh, exile, and then another lot of 14 up to Jesus. 
I urge you when you get the opportunity to count and see if you can make it 14, 14 and 14, because if you can, you're a better mathematician than I am. And I think I'm a better mathematician than St. Matthew is. But I don't think that he's made a mistake. I think, and this is only one of my theories, you can take it or leave it, that St. Matthew is trying to do two things at once. He's trying to make Jesus number 42, but he's also trying to make Jesus number 41. Why should he be doing that? Well, three 14s are, you will probably know this, six sevens. And seven, of course, is the number of perfection in the sort of uh, Israelite numerological scheme. Seven is the number of perfection going back, of course, to the time of creation. So up to Jesus, we've had six sevens. Jesus then begins the seventh seven. The beginning of the story of Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven, the beginning of the perfect week of salvation history, if you like. So I think he wants to do that. But I also think he wants Jesus to be number 41, because that means we've had 40. 40 what? Well, uh, on the face of it, 40 generations. But of course, that reminds us of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. Is he suggesting to us in some subtle way that Jesus is now completing the wilderness wanderings of the people of God and finally, truly and authentically bringing the people of Israel into the promised land? So we know that the authors of the scriptures and then their later interpreters in the Jewish tradition love these kinds of number games. So although it may seem a bit crazy to think that he's trying to do this, it doesn't seem to me to be at all unlikely. In any case, he then takes us through the history, a particular history of Jesus's family. And one of the things that we notice is that he mentions a number of women. Generally speaking, the pattern, of course, is so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and so it grinds on. But occasionally, we do get a mother mentioned. Uh, those mothers are, first of all, Ruth. The second is the wife of Uriah. Uh, oh, I beg your pardon, I've missed one out already. Look, first is Rahab, the second is Ruth, the third is the wife of Uriah, and somewhere, I can't see where it is now, we have Tamar. I'm probably getting them all in the wrong order, but it doesn't matter. What matters is this. All of these women are women who represent in some way a kind of, to be blunt about it, kind of sexual mismatch, a little sexual blip, in, if you will, in the history of Israel. For example, a Tamar, in order to uh, get pregnant with uh, Perez and Zerah by Judah, she has to seduce uh, Judah because he refuses to do the decent thing. I'll let you check the detail in the scriptures. Ruth, of course, does a very similar thing when she seduces Boaz, going and lying down by him while he is drunk at the end of the harvest. 
Now, with the wife of Uriah, of course, it's the other way around. She has, well, she is the victim, shall we say, of adultery. David is definitely in the wrong in this one. Though when Uriah's wife is bathing on the roof, one has to ask oneself, does she know that people can see? Is it normal to take a bath on a roof? Or would you normally do it indoors, maybe in the bathroom? So all of these are sort of sexually questionable. Rahab herself features in the book of Joshua as a prostitute. The last woman who is mentioned, of course, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's the exact opposite. And I think, again, St. Matthew is doing this quite deliberately. He is contrasting the exemplary chastity of the Blessed Virgin Mary with the very non-exemplary non-chastity of the other women that he's mentioned. But there is something else as well, of course. All of those women, though in many ways not exemplary, they were nevertheless necessary in the history of salvation in order to allow that progress to be made, in order to allow Jesus's family to continue to develop and lead on to the birth of Christ, passing down the inheritance of Abraham and then of David. That continued story of salvation history is made to continue by these women who are also, of course, foreigners. So he's showing us that Israel's salvation history is not straightforward that it is dependent by the will of God on the occasional little bit of disruption. And I think these women represent that kind of disruption. And disruption reaches its climax precisely at the end of the genealogy. I mentioned already we have this pattern, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. So what we would be expecting at the end of this long genealogy is Jacob was the father of Joseph and Joseph was the father of Jesus. But we don't get that. Instead, we get Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. At the very end, there's this sudden disruption. Now, occasionally you'll be told that the fact that Joseph gave Jesus his name is a sort of formal process of adoption. I'm not sure that that's quite right. I think St. Matthew wants to tell us that Jesus simultaneously is and is not the inheritor of all of this family tree. Jesus does inherit all of the status of being the descendant of Abraham. And of course, very importantly, Jesus is a descendant of David and therefore an authentic Messiah. But at the same time, just as salvation history reaches its climax, the pattern is shattered and Jesus comes from nowhere. He comes in from outside. He is at one and the same time the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made, and yet the shattering surprise. God is totally faithful to his promises, 
we can see that that is the case, but we could never have imagined that he would be faithful in the way that he has been in the birth of Jesus. So we have these 14 and 14 and 14 generations, or at least so St. Matthew tells us, and that completes the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or shall we translate it, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. That's the end of the first section of St. Matthew's Gospel, and therefore perhaps is a sensible place for us to take our first musical break. Now, normally, I'm going to let Tim choose the music for these things because I'm no expert at all in such matters. But it did occur to me the other day when we were chatting by email, as today is Ash Wednesday, perhaps we ought to listen to the Miserere May. And what better version, the answer is there isn't one, than that of Allegri, traditionally sung in the Sistine Chapel on this day every year. But this version is coming to us from King's College in Cambridge.
to coin a phrase, now that's what I call music. And we shall be enjoying some more music from the traditional Ash Wednesday liturgy later on this afternoon. But let us return to St. Matthew's Gospel. And the birth of Jesus, we are told, took place when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you will hear people say, you know, St. Matthew has misunderstood uh, the Emmanuel prophecy, which he quotes a little bit later on in his gospel, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And that, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary wasn't a virgin at all. It's a complete misunderstanding. But in fact, it is that view which is a misunderstanding. St. Matthew knows perfectly well what he's doing. And both he and St. Luke, though their infancy stories are extremely different in all sorts of ways, one of the things they both have in common is this absolute clarity that the Blessed Virgin Mary gave birth to a child who had no human father. I think it's worth saying, because this is something that's often misunderstood, that we're not supposed to think of Christ as, because he has uh, a human mother, but a, a divine father, that he's sort of some kind of half-breed. Christ, as we know, is fully human and fully divine. And it seems to me that it would have been perfectly possible, had God so ordained it, for Christ to have had a human father and a human mother and been fully human and fully divine. He doesn't need, as it were, a virgin mother to be who he is. I think both the evangelists are showing us the virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary in order to give us a sign of who Jesus is, and in particular, as I've already suggested, a sign of the way in which Christ's birth simultaneously fulfills God's promises and yet shatters all human expectations. God is doing a strikingly new thing, something that has never happened before, is having in the conception of Christ in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. Interestingly, also both St. Matthew and St. Luke make it clear that he is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Uh, St. Luke is very interested in the Holy Spirit throughout his gospel, whereas St. Matthew mentions it much less. But twice in just a few verses, in verse 18 and verse 20, we're told that the child is of the Holy Spirit. So that's absolutely crucial. This is the same Holy Spirit which, in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, is hovering over the waters. In the conception of Jesus Christ, that same creative spirit of God is bringing to birth a new creation. As St. Paul tells us somewhere, it is in Jesus Christ that the new creation is inaugurated. It is in Jesus Christ, in fact, that we are the new creation. So that mention of the Holy Spirit, I think, is really important. Also, of course, both St. Matthew and St. Luke mention an angel, though St. Matthew doesn't tell us that it was the angel Gabriel. Uh, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, 
I've always rather assumed that it was the angel Gabriel, um, but who knows? I mean, there are plenty of angels to go around, so perhaps it was another one. But the message is strikingly similar. And in particular, two features of the message are the same in both cases. The first feature of the message, which I've already mentioned, is that the child is conceived of the Holy Spirit. The second feature of the message is that the child must be named Jesus because he is to be a savior. In the case of St. Luke, we know the story of the Annunciation and Our Lady's um, perfect example of obedience in saying, let it be to me as you have said. St. Joseph, in fact, doesn't say anything. Poor St. Joseph doesn't get a word in edgeways anywhere uh, in the Gospels, but we may safely take it that he does name the child Jesus. We're told a little later on, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And then a little bit later on, we're told, and he named him Jesus. So St. Joseph, like Our Lady, is an example of perfect obedience. And in naming Jesus by that name, he is enabling Jesus, permitting Jesus to be whom God wills him to be. St. Joseph is a perfect example of how God invites us to cooperate in his divine plan, how he gives us the freedom to say yes or no to what it is that he asks of us. And in the case of Joseph, and in the case of many of you listening, I'm sure, also the opportunity to say yes or no, perhaps, to what God is asking of us in regards to our children. One sees so many examples these days of children who've been in one way or another messed up by their parents, sometimes because their parents have driven them to be somebody that it, it didn't emerge naturally for that child to be. In other cases, parents who wouldn't allow their children to be the people that they wanted to be. But St. Joseph is an example of the wisdom of allowing God to make it clear who a child is supposed to be. What is the calling of this person that God has placed in my care? And how can I help this child to be the person God wants him or her to be? In a certain sense, I suggest, I hesitate to say this because, of course, I don't have any children and I don't suppose ever will. But in a certain sense, isn't every parent in the same position that St. Joseph finds himself in of being asked to take care of a child that fundamentally does not belong to him? Because every child fundamentally belongs to God. And Joseph shows us a perfect example of parenthood, a perfect example of being the custos salvatoris, the guardian of the saviour. Joseph, we're already told, is a righteous man. He obviously loves his wife and doesn't want to humiliate her when he discovers that she's pregnant and knows that he's not the father. But then all becomes clear. 
Just one final word on Joseph, if I may, which is that I often recommend prayer to St. Joseph to especially young men, but to all men who are troubled by difficulties in chastity. And I know a great many people have found him to be a tremendous source of support. It becomes clear from both St. Matthew and St. Luke's Gospels that Joseph was never able to have a normal marriage with his wife. He didn't get what he bargained for. He got a great deal more than he bargained for. That's the case with all of us when we offer our lives in service to God, in obedience to God. But when we get more than we bargained for, we sometimes find it hard. And I think St. Joseph can be a tremendous example to us and through his intercession also a support for us in accepting God's will for ourselves and, and following our vocation to holiness. So I entirely commend him to you. Uh, before we have our next piece of music, just one final point, which is specifically on the name of Jesus. Uh, as you know, and I bang on about this an awful lot, so those of you who've listened to me before would have heard me say this, it's really important that Jesus's name is Jesus because Jesus's name is Joshua. The Greek version of Yeshua, which comes to us in the Old Testament as Joshua, is Jesus. So when the first hearers of St. Matthew's Gospel, or indeed any of the Christian proclamation of the earliest church, heard that the Savior's name was Jesus, they were hearing that the Savior's name was Joshua. And it's always struck me as inevitable that people, when they heard that, would have thought back to the first Joshua, the successor of Moses, and wondered whether this was a chance thing or whether perhaps it signified something more. I've already suggested to you the possibility that we're meant to think of the 40 days in the wilderness, and in a month or two's time we'll see Christ having his own 40 days in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil. Then, of course, Christ is baptized in the Jordan, through which the first Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. So we should see that God knows what he's doing when he says you must call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's suggesting to us that we are, because of our sinfulness, still in the wilderness, still not really home. And it is only Jesus Christ who, as the new and the true Joshua, can bring us to our heavenly homeland. As we break for our next piece of music, I should probably remind you that you are entirely at liberty to ring in and uh, suggest some questions that you might like to ask over the next half an hour. So do give that some thought, and if you'd like to call in, we'll let you know what the number is after this next piece of music, which is William Byrd's Emendamus in Melius.
If you're wondering what that beautiful music was and you've just tuned in, that was William Byrd's Emendemos en Melios. And um, this is our Hour of Credo, where we have been hearing Father Richard Almsworth, um, Dominican father who's currently in uh, Leicester, who's been speaking to us about the book of Matthew. And we are now going to open up the phone lines so that if anybody wants to call, they can do that. And the number to dial is 01223-375-564. And um, don't be shy to interrupt. I'm here ready to take your call and pass it on to um, Father Richard. So uh, do do that. But in the meantime, I'm going to let you say a few more words, Father Richard. Thank you very much indeed. We find ourselves now at the beginning of chapter two of St. Matthew's Gospel and the story of the wise men from the East, uh, a story which St. Luke doesn't include. We don't know why he didn't include it in his Gospel, but we shan't let that worry us. I'm sure that both evangelists knew what they were doing. I think one of the most famous things about the wise men from the East is that the, they weren't kings and there weren't necessarily three of them. It just says some wise men. There might have been three and who knows, they might have been kings. It doesn't say. And we don't know exactly where they came from. The East is a big place. And I don't think it matters. And neither do I think it matters, as some people seem to think, that we find out what this star was that they saw. You'll sometimes read articles or see something on the television about the suggestion that maybe it was a conjunction of this planet, that planet, and the other planet, and who knows, maybe it was. All I would say about this is you can watch a star rising, you can maybe even see you know, where it's rising, where it seems to be going, but at least two actual miracles happen in this story. And I think it's important we recognize that it is miraculous. Firstly, it is miraculous that these wise men, whoever they are, wherever they come from, can see whatever it is that they see and somehow know that this means a child has been born who is the king of the Jews. Because in real life, astrology is a lot of old bunk. There's nothing in it whatsoever. And yet this is the one occasion when astrological study actually proves to tell the truth. And to my mind, that itself is a miracle. And of course, it's a symbol of the fact that human wisdom, the human sciences, which have their own very, very important and valuable role to play. And in the time of St. Matthew's Gospel, astrology would undoubtedly have been one of those, and these men undoubtedly really are wise. They're not just charlatans like modern-day astrologers, but the human sciences have their role to play, but the most vital thing that they can do, as with any human knowledge, is lead us to Christ. The way in which the modern sciences can lead us to Christ is, for example, by giving us an appreciation for the wonder and the beauty of the world, and then leading us to say, yes, but why should it be that there is a world that is so beautiful? Why should it be that there is a universe for these rules of physics to be true about? 
What is it that lies beneath, behind all of this wonderful, extraordinary reality that we are discovering? And to realize that the great unanswered and unanswerable question has a name, and that name is God. So I think the story of the wise men and the star is partly symbolic of that, that we are to be brought by whatever kind of knowledge we may have. We are to allow that knowledge to bring us to Jesus Christ, and rightly, they want to come and pay him homage. And there's, of course, a very strong contrast between these three wise men and the one very foolish man, Herod, who thinks that he's threatened and uh, wants to kill the child, and not just foolish, but of course, monstrous wickedness. It's sometimes said, you know, this can't really be historically true, because there's no evidence in any pagan literature for the massacre of the innocents. And I'm afraid to say the tragedy is that there probably wouldn't be. Bethlehem was not a huge city, it's a small village, it still is a fairly small place. And the fact of the matter is that in the ancient world, if a king sent his soldiers and they massacred, I don't know, half a dozen, two dozen young children, that was so ordinary, such a commonplace event, that it wouldn't have been recorded in history. Certainly not if it took place in an absolute backwater like Bethlehem. It reminds us of the extent to which still in this world, children born and unborn and other unwanted people, marginalized people, are treated with contempt, are slain, are tortured, are abused, and this goes absolutely undocumented and unnoticed. But this hasn't gone undocumented and unnoticed because St. Matthew has told us about it. And isn't that a suggestion that it's the task of the Christian to find out the reality of man's inhumanity to man and make it known in order to recall humanity to goodness, kindness, truth, and beauty, to call us to stop being Herods and start being Magi instead? So that, for me, I think is one of the lessons of this extraordinary story. So I mentioned already the first miracle is the fact that they knew that this meant that this was the birth of a king of Israel, a king of the Jews. The second miracle, of course, is the fact that the star stopped exactly over the place where the child was, and they knew that this was the right house, and in they went and they knew that this was the right child, and they knelt down and paid him homage with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you'll have been told, I'm sure, in sermons, but it's worth mentioning again, the gold and the frankincense, firstly, they're kind of obvious. They're valuable things. They're worth having. What better presents could there be to offer a child who is born to be king? And of course, they're also a fulfillment of, um, I can't remember where it is, but an Old Testament prophecy that kings would come from the east bearing gold and frankincense. But the myrrh, nobody saw that coming. It's another example of how St. Matthew simultaneously shows us the fulfillment 
of all our hopes, all our desires, all our expectations, and yet the shatteringly unexpected. And this myrrh is shatteringly unexpected because it foreshadows the tragic death of Christ. Uh, it's, it's something that would be used to anoint a dead body. It is a profoundly bitter thing, myrrh. And so it symbolizes the terrible bitterness and utter unexpectedness of the fact that this child who is born to be king should end up being crowned with thorns and enthroned on a cross. Oh, just as I stopped saying that, I heard the Angelus bell starting to ring. That's very exciting. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I had a question for you, Father. By um, all means. Yes, so I find it quite interesting that you brought up the uh, the virgin birth and saying that God could have um, done, could have uh, been incarnate yeah. without the um, yeah. right. Is that is that something that we speculate because the church hasn't made a definitive judgment on, or or do you think that's? Well, I don't know that the church has ever. I mean, it doesn't need to make a judgment on it because it, it what happened, in fact, happened. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems to me plainly obvious that God wasn't bound by some kind of scientific laws or, or theological rules to make his incarnate word the child of a virgin. It, you may say it's appropriate, and I think a lot of theologians would say it's appropriate, but, I mean, whether or not Jesus had had one parent or two human parents, he still has the full set of chromosomes. He still has completely human DNA. In a certain sense, the only thing that, that's different is whether he has all of his DNA from one person or, as is more usual, half of it from one person and half of it from another person. Either way, he's still fully human. And what I'm suggesting is, Either way, he's still fully divine. It's not as if he's got semi-divine DNA, after all. Right. I can see I've blown your mind. <laughs> and this is not the first time I've done that. I mentioned this in a tutorial with one of my students in Oxford uh, three or four weeks ago, and he seemed equally astonished. But I find it astonishing that it should be astonishing. I, I suppose we're just so used to it. Hmm. The thing is, I... I suppose that in order to communicate his divinity, he chose to be born of a virgin because there's no other. It it it, it communicates the fact that he is yes. divine. Yeah, exactly. It it is. It's not a precondition of his divinity, but it is a sign of his divinity. Okay. But I, the reason I mention it is because I do think there is that danger. Not, I'm sure, among our listeners, but. But a lot of people who sort of half know the Christian story and know that Jesus is supposedly born of a virgin will get the impression that we think that means that he's half human and half divine because he has one parent of each. You know, yeah. like, a, like a, a lion and a tiger make a liger. But Jesus isn't, isn't a liger. He's yeah. fully human and fully divine. And it's really important that we say that. And I, and I just want to avoid that misunderstanding which I think the virgin birth can lead to among those who don't know the full story, as it were. Yeah. 
I don't know if I would be able to articulate this well, but it's it's says also to me that his humanity is just as much a, a miracle. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's obvious in, in many ways, but um, yeah, it's, it's no, a lot no, you're absolutely right. I remember years ago now being asked to review a book. I, I forget uh, who it was by, but at, at some point in this book, it, it, and I in the end said, I won't review it because I can't say anything nice about it. Um, I one doesn't want to be mean, so it's better to say nothing than say something nasty. But the argument essentially was being made in this book that Jesus couldn't really have been born of a virgin because every human being has to have DNA from two parents. But all that that was saying is Jesus couldn't have been born of a virgin because it's impossible. But of course, St. Matthew and St. Luke both know it's impossible. Yeah. That's the whole point of the story. Otherwise, why bother mentioning it? Yeah. It is a miracle. The, you're absolutely right. The humanity of Jesus is a miracle. And the fact that God has become a human being is an even greater miracle. That the two miracles, as it were, point towards one another and, and, and interlock very beautifully. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I found interesting... Um... And just a reminder that if anyone wants to call in and ask a question or point out something that they found interesting, you can do that. The number is zero one two two three three seven five five six four, um, and we'll we'll take your questions. We've got another uh, ten minutes left, or just just less than that. Um, was what you said about how Jesus' name would have been understood as just a common name of that time, and the name Joshua. As we know it now, um, I I remember hearing that in the the Vulgate, the the Latin word um, is the same for Jesus and Joshua. Yes. So yes. you yes. some you sometimes find these uh, quotations from the uh, the Church Fathers saying it was Jesus who led the Israelites out of. Um, you know, across yes. The, uh... yes, exactly. And if you uh, if you have a, a copy of the Dowie Reams Bible, mm -hmm. which is actually a translation of the Vulgate, then the sixth book of of the Bible in that edition is called the Book of Jesus. Interesting. And it just strikes you as being so odd that that should be the case. Um, and I think it would have really made people do a double take. And and in fact, I, I first became aware of this myself when reading the letter to the Hebrews, where the author says, if Jesus had given them, the people of Israel, rest, dot, dot, dot. And I thought, why is he having a go at Jesus? And I read it over and over again. I was reading it in Greek because I'm a show off. Um, well, I had to write an essay on it. It seemed like the least I could do. Yeah. And I just couldn't make sense of it. And it was only when I looked in the RSV thinking, what have I misunderstood? I realized what I'd misunderstood. Well, I hadn't misunderstood anything. He did say Jesus. It's just that he didn't mean Jesus, the son of God. He meant Jesus, the son of none. So it is a really striking thing. And I really think it makes you do a sort of theological double take once you realize it. The son of none, that, that um, begs some kind of pun doesn't it, <laughs> it, it yes you, I, i'm sorry to tell you you wouldn't be the first to make it if you did um well that's great um i think what we're going to do is we we've got one more little piece of music although we don't have that much time 
Um, I'm wondering if we should give our callers a chance to, to call in. I think it might be good for you. If you have any words to finish on, we'll leave the music for now. Um, sure. And then if you just end with a prayer before we get to the hour, that would be wonderful. I will do that with pleasure. Of course I will. What remains of chapter two of St. Matthew's Gospel is the story of the flight into Egypt, um, which actually takes up more space than the story of the three wise men, though we often ignore it. Well, the flight into Egypt includes the story of the massacre of the innocents. Um, but one of the things which is very striking about the flight into Egypt is, of course, this is not the first time that this has happened. Again, St. Matthew is reminding us of the way in which, in Christ, God is going back over the history of Israel in a certain sense. Yesterday in my scripture group, we read about the first time that, in fact, the first time that Egypt is mentioned in the Bible is when Abraham is forced to go into Egypt because of a famine in the land. And then we have the rather strange incident of him pretending that Sarai, his wife, is in fact his sister, and then sort of marrying her off to Pharaoh in Pharaoh's harem and becoming rich as a result. It's a very peculiar story, which I won't go into now. But I think the point is Egypt represents in the scriptures simultaneously a place of refuge and yet also a place of danger. And that's, that's a really odd kind of place that it finds itself having. Uh, you find, again, of course, um, Isaac, uh, Jacob, sorry, and his sons going into Egypt in a time of famine. And there is Joseph already there. And Joseph has become wealthy. They go there to find safety. But in fact, they find danger. But in the end, they find redemption. And then, of course, famously, the story of the flight from Egypt in the Exodus. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. What Matthew is telling us when he quotes that exact line from the prophet Hosea is that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the son that God has called out of Egypt and that Jesus is now finally and authentically going to bring to fulfillment the exodus and conquest of the promised land that have already been foreshadowed in the history of Israel. This is, I suppose, an example of what we would call a typological reading in which something that happens in the history of Israel foreshadows something that happens in, through, or with Christ in such a way as to suggest that the history of Israel was always being guided by God towards Christ. It was always um, deliberately foreshadowing, pre-echoing, if you will, salvation in Jesus Christ as God marks out his plan of salvation, which is, if you will, a Christ-shaped plan. He marks that out over and over again in the history of Israel. One day when I have longer, if you remind me, I will talk to you about how we can imagine this in terms of potatoes. 
but I won't go into potatoes now with just three minutes to go. That would be a shame. What we do instead is notice that eventually it is safe to return to uh, Judea because Herod has died. And then he goes to Galilee and there we find ourselves in Nazareth. This is St. Matthew's explanation of how Jesus comes to be called a Nazarene, even though he was born in Bethlehem. Luke has a different explanation of the relationship between Jesus' birth and Nazareth and Bethlehem, but they could both be true. It's easy enough to make them compatible. I think what matters for us is that Jesus being born in Bethlehem shows that he is a true son of David, but coming from Nazareth, that was a well-known fact. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy, according to the last line of Matthew chapter 2. And can anything good come out of Nazareth was a common expression in the time of Christ. And I think as we read through the rest of St. Matthew's Gospel, we will discover that the answer to that is a resounding yes. Shall I finish with a prayer? Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon us. As we begin this period of Lent, sustain us in our penances and give us the strength through the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, to bear witness to your love in the world, to preach your gospel, and to have the courage that we need to live good and holy lives, now and forever, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Richard. Thank you.